Welcome to North Star Big Book. My name is Carly Israel, and I am your host. My sobriety date is January 27th, 1999, and I created this podcast simply to share the message of the big book. It completely changed my life. It always changes my life, and I hope it can help change yours. Carly Recovered Alcoholic. I have one of my favorite people on here. Will you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Eileen, uh, Recovering Alcoholic. Eileen, how long have we been working together? Oh, probably about three years or so. I'm so excited. I remember I was thinking about it because I, I do all my thinking in the shower and I was thinking that I remember, so you used to come around to the Big Book group that we have on Thursday nights, which everyone's welcome, 7 p.m., um, North Star Big Book, and you would come around with the guys that were your right. nephew and cousins or nephew yes. and friends. Yeah, nephew and his friends, yeah. And these guys were so excited about being sober and studying the book, and you were too, and, but you had time, and you are also an Al-Anon, right? Right. Double winner. So it was so refreshing to have you come around, and I remember when you were talking about um, looking for a sponsor, and you connected with one of my girls, um, I was happy for you, but I was like, I want her. You can't <laughs> tell somebody you want them. So when it came around to us getting to work together, I was so thrilled um, because I love working with people who are hungry to grow and change. Yeah, yeah. it's been awesome. Something. What's it's your sobriety awesome date? My sobriety date is May 18th, 2008. So we have... Uh, God willing, I'll have 13 years this May. Yay. Um, and your home group is so people can know about it and join? Yes, Sister Ignatia. And we meet at 8 p.m. on Friday nights at Church of the Nazarene on Trubisky Road in Richmond Heights. They also have a Zoom option as well. Um, and then as the weather gets nicer, we've been meeting outside uh, in a local uh, VFW post. So it's been great. Yeah, that's so nice. I'm finding that the things about COVID that I'm making positive are, I get to go to different meetings all over the world. And I love that. And I've got to tell you, I actually, because I have ADD, I make, I'm actually able to pay attention better on Zoom than I am in a room. Because when I'm in a room, I'm like looking at everybody. But on Zoom, I have to stare at your faces or else it's <laughs> ridiculous. So I'm so glad. Tell me what pages we're doing and why you chose them. So we're actually doing a page or a paragraph of a page, and that's uh, actually page 52, um, and it's in the chapter Agnostics. And the reason I chose uh, this particular paragraph is um, I did not appreciate that AA and uh, alcoholism was a disease that covered my entire life. I really saw it very early on and actually for the first six years as, okay, so I put down the alcohol, what's the big deal? I was mm -hmm. fortunate, the cravings were gone fast and my life was pretty okay for about the first four or five years until it wasn't um, because I backed away from the program because I thought I'm tired of hearing the same chicken wing story. <laughs> I'm tired of hearing this. And I got, um, fell into a really bad place of, um, a sober bottom. And I remember the day vividly, I had been dating a gentleman in the program and he looked at me and he said, you aren't even working a program. I said, what do you mean? Yes, I am. I go to meetings. I have a sponsor. He goes, the fact that you couldn't even come up with at least saying the serenity prayer when you're frustrated 
leads me to believe that you don't appreciate how you can intertwine this in your life. Mm. And I'm like, so he called you out and said you were like doing AA at the AA time, but you weren't living it. Absolutely not. And that's I such a difference, isn't it? Yes. Yes. I didn't even understand. And maybe because I wasn't willing to hear that alcoholism is a thinking disease, right? It's an ism, right? The ism I didn't get. I got the alcohol. I didn't understand the ism and what it had, what that meant in my life and in my thinking. That's so important to acknowledge because we come to Alcoholics Anonymous thinking our problem is alcohol. Mm -hmm. And unless we encounter someone that's armed with the facts that are in this book, we believe that the problem is alcohol. And if you're like me, I went to meetings and all I heard was don't drink and go to meetings and keep coming back. It'll get better. And I did come back and I didn't drink and it didn't get better. And I didn't understand that what they were referring to was if I kept coming back, I would hear the solution. But what I'm really hungry for and what my responsibility is and ours is, is at every meeting, they're supposed to hear their solution, which is go do the work. Like I wasn't hearing that. So I was like, oh, I'm doing what you're telling me to do. And, And you know what? When you said this page, I thought of two things. There's only been one time in my whole sobriety where I, the mental obsession came back so bad that I believe the lie that I didn't belong here. Mm-hmm. And I was rather new. Um, I was still a student in college at Ohio University. And I remember my mind was getting really yucky because I was doing nothing other than not drinking, going to meetings. Right. And I was depressed. And my mind told me the lie that I don't belong here because everyone's happy and I'm not happy. And mm-hmm. they're going to see how crazy I am. And every time I go to a meeting, everyone's happy and I feel like a fraud and I learned the language real quickly and I'm lying to people in meetings and they're asking me how I am. I'm great. How are you? Because I don't want to talk about it. And Mm -hmm. the second the meeting is over, I'm thinking, I say no to fellowship. I get ready to go so I can go home and be mad, you know? And when I found this page that we're going to read, I, I felt like crap. Now I belong here because they're talking about this depression that I have. Right. And oh my God, like I belong here. You know, so on the one hand, like I was like, I want to leave and this is my ticket out. They're going to see, like I've always thought I don't belong. And then when they talked about this, this can happen, what we're about to read, sober, air quote sober. Mine happened without alcohol in my body. Yep, me too. Me too. Thank you for bringing us to this. And I want, um, before we read this part, I want everyone to understand that this is, like a checklist of untreated alcoholism, mm-hmm. these things that Eileen's going to read to us and we're going to discuss can happen in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous while we're sitting in the room sober, or they can happen when we're drinking. And it's just a description of someone who's not recovered, right? And so if you can relate to them, then the good news is there's something we can do about it, right? Yes, yes, there is. A lot right, and your, your real job in regular life is, t- tell us what you do. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and I work with um, kids and adolescents, like children and adolescents and their families. So I see not only the disease of, you know, addiction and alcoholism, but I also see the dysfunction of mind that really sounds a lot like what we're right. reading. Right, because it's about being not recovered, about being lost and not having a solution and basically just being on our own and not knowing that there's a solution in your job in the rooms of AA and in your regular life is to help people realize that there's a solution. Yes. Well, that's pretty cool. So take us through. Okay. 
we had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems this same readiness to change our point of view. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression and we couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. I want to stop well, you right there. Yes. I want to go back through that. I want you to tell me, and I'm going to tell you, I put a check mark next to the ones I could relate to, whether I was in the rooms or I was out of the rooms, but that I've experienced. So were you having trouble with personal relationships? Yes, absolutely. Were you able to control your emotional nature? Absolutely not. Me neither. Were you a prey to misery? Yes. How about depression? Absolutely. That was a bummer because I was like, no, I'm special. Um, <laughs> I had a trouble, so I could make a living because I could, you know, like be a waitress wherever, but I couldn't have a career. I couldn't have a, I couldn't stay anywhere because I couldn't be within myself. Right. Um, did you have a feeling of uselessness? Yes. Me too. How about full of fear? Yeah. Fear drove my life. Absolutely. How about unhappy? Oh yeah. Were you able to be a real help to other people? Um, no, because I wasn't willing to give. And okay. I wasn't honest. I couldn't be right. honest with myself. You know that idea that they talk about in a vision for you, you cannot give something you don't have. I like to think of it in like the most basic like level. I live in a really like family friendly area and people knock on my door all the time. If some kid knocked on my door and asked me if I had cookies and I didn't have cookies, I couldn't pretend I had them and give them to him. Right. I have to have it in order to give it, which means I need to do this work. So when I, me and you just went through that checklist and we just scored a hundred out of a hundred, right? Right. So we, our un at that time in our lives, we had untreated alcoholism, which is confusing because if I'm not drinking, I'm going to meetings, I have a sponsor and I have a service position. What are you talking about? Right, right. So I think what's what's really interesting, and I'm sure this is um, this is a God moment, but yesterday I found out that my headlamp was out in my car. And so the responsible thing to do was I got to get this replaced because it's dark out and I don't want to get a ticket. Let's be candid. So I go to the auto parts store so that they can help me change this bulb. And he was having trouble. And so he brought a couple other people in and suddenly this big monkey wrench, he has this big monkey wrench and he brought it in. And I looked at it and I said to him, I, it's kind of funny that you have that monkey wrench there. I said, my first memory of a monkey wrench was when I was five years old. I got really angry at my neighbor. She was my friend and she had everything I wanted. So I took that monkey wrench and hit her over the head and sent her to the hospital. Wow. Cut her head open. Stitches. You know, my parents never talked about it because apparently they wanted to sue us. And so as I've been in the rooms, I think to myself, before I picked up a drink, my thinking was off. Who Me picked too. up a monkey wrench? Right. It, because here, that's such a great story, Eileen, I mean, because... Our alcoholism had nothing to do with any of these things, right? I, I mean, our alcohol, not our alcoholism. That is our alcoholism. Alcohol had nothing. Alcohol was our solution. Alcohol and drugs was our solution. And then when they took away alcohol and drugs, in order for me to deal with personal relationships in AA, emotional nature, misery and depression in AA, I sought men, sex, relationships, oh. food, body stuff, clothes, you know, whatever I could find to not because I didn't want to do the work. Like I want everyone to hear, and I don't know if you can relate to this. I didn't want to be a big book thumper. I didn't right. want to be someone who walked around and said, this is the only way to do this. Right. Because 
and it's not the only way to do this. It's just the only way that's worked for me. Right. But I did not seek out this solution in the rooms because I could tell it was going to be more work than I wanted to put in. Right, right. You know, for me, it was not so much I didn't want to, but I guess I didn't even get it. Like, I didn't even know that I should have been doing anything different. And I think part of that is, you know, um, and I've, I've had this conversation with a couple people. said, I feel that I'm pretty fortunate. I came into the rooms at 44 and um, I still had physically everything. I had the house and the dogs and the camper and the car. You're outside. Stop. Everything on the outside. And I said, so, you know, it was pretty easy for me initially to stay sober. And that carried me for a couple of years because I was afraid to lose it all. Yeah. But when I began to back away from meetings and suddenly what the meetings were doing for me that I didn't realize at least a little bit was helping me to kind of refocus my thinking. Life got way out of hand. Like I like had job issues, issues with my kids. I was going through a divorce. I mean, suddenly this perfect life that I thought I had was an illusion. And it was beautiful. It wasn't at the time, but that sober bottom helped me appreciate the disease. Yeah, I didn't appreciate and understand that. Oh my God, I am my own worst problem. Just like we don't really know how bad our alcoholism is until we try to not drink, right? right. So, like when you take away the alcohol from us, and you're left with that ick that you talked about in the beginning, um, and I can't remember what it stood for. Um, I was it ISM. I feel like Marianne talked about this. I ism. The ism is I, my, I self and me. Yeah. And that's the only thing we care about. And, you know, I'm thinking about it and me and you together, I wouldn't, wouldn't do it on here, but we could come up with so many names of so many women that we've worked with and friends that we've known and they had it. They were sponsoring, they were carrying the message. They were part of our army and they stopped. They put it down. They put down the work, they put down the solution. And then they got into this place and the mental obsession told them that the problem wasn't the work, that it was so much bigger, that it wasn't that simple of a solution. And it I is see. because yeah. like, if it wasn't, it's simple, but it's not easy, right? It Correct. takes consistency. Correct. Correct. Well, you know, it, it's interesting, Carly, because I remember when, um, and it was just over about a year ago where I had a falling out with my sponsor and I couldn't quite figure out what it was. And um, those boys, that nephew and folks said to me, I think you need to reach out to Carly and her and that group because I think they could help you. And in a matter of 24 hours, I can tell you that because of um, how the work was done with me, I was a different person by the next day. And suddenly I saw my part in a way that had nothing to do with the drink. But it had everything to do with um, my point of view. It had it had to do with how I was um, trying to control relationships. It had to do with how out of control my emotions were, how I was relying on a person versus God as a higher power. All those things that we talk about in this paragraph came to light like that. And it changed my life because suddenly I'm like, oh, my God, I this is a solution that I need. And it was like just another layer of that onion where at six years, I started realizing it wasn't quite right, started doing things differently. 
But then at year 10, it was like, oh, wow, the world opened up to me. And I'm a different person even now uh, than I was then. Thank God, because of other people who, from my perspective, see the truth in the big book, right? Here's the truth. And I knew that when I saw that truth, that it was right because it was the truth. And it's uncomfortable because like I told you before, I wanted the solution to be that you guys were all happy, that I was different, that my stuff was too messed up and I couldn't do this. This was not going to work for me because I didn't want it to work for me because there was a part of me that wanted out. And when you guys brought me here and you said, can you relate to page 52? I was like, no, I do. That sucks. I have to stay. And I remember, you know, at the meetings I went to in Athens, Ohio, every single meeting, they read how it works. Right. And in how it works, it says on page 58 in that first paragraph. So here's what I want to share with everybody. Cause I, I also sat in meetings and I try to talk myself out of this paragraph, like right. halfway through, um, well, I'll just start from the beginning, right? It says rarely yeah. have we seen a person fail who has, fo- who has thoroughly followed our path. The first edition used to say our directions, okay? Right. And, and it doesn't say, when I want to share this, and I think you can probably relate as well, I've never seen a man or a woman stop doing the work. I'm sorry, I've never seen a man or a woman not stay sober who follow the directions. Correct. And continue to follow them. Correct, right? every day. I've seen them get sober, awesome, live amazing lives, follow the directions. When they stop following the directions, they couldn't stay sober. That's right. 100%, right? Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to the simple program. So it says completely, which means I have to do it all. Right. right? It says it's simple, not easy, right? Usually men and women who are, and here's what I thought I was. Yes. I thought I was constitutionally capable of being honest with themselves. You're a professional. Yeah. This is a medical condition, right? Right, right. That's not someone who's dishonest. This no. is what, tell me what that is. So constitutionally capable is someone from a mental perspective who isn't, in a place of sanity that could even understand. So maybe somebody who's got some mental disability, somebody who's got, you know, um, a disease process of the mind that doesn't even allow them to uh, process this. That's not so dishonest. That's a mental disease. Yes. Okay. So I don't have that, but I, I'm definitely a liar, right? And then it says they are such un- there are such unfortunates, they are not at fault, right? Because they're mental, they're mentally, you know, ill. Says they seem to have been born that way. And here's the other part that I was really upset about. They're naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner, I underline this, a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. So this new way of life is now going to demand rigorous honesty, first with myself, then with my sponsor and God, right? Yeah. Their chances are less than average. And then here's what really screwed me over. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional mental disorders. So grave is life and death. That's me. I have a life and death emotional mental disorder. Mine is, for full disclosure, I have um, anxiety. Mm-hmm. And my anxiety for many, many years in the program and out looked like depression. Right. Um, I don't have depression. I'm actually like ha- glass half full. Like I want to live life. Right. But I looked like a depressed person because right. I was so anxious living life that I couldn't focus and I wanted out. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you relate to that? I can because I too... Um, in full disclosure, I have suffered from anxiety and, and deep depression. Um, however, um, that didn't mean though, that I couldn't get the program. Right. And And nothing to do with it. Right. It says even people like me and you who could be locked up and die of a life and death, emotional mental disorder 
here's what they say. We can recover if we have the capacity, which is ability to be right. honest. So I love this idea of capacity because I'm a very logical visual person. And so I have not to joke because it's a 40 ounce, but my special to like, you know, metal cool water bottle is capable of holding 40 ounces. Okay. Yeah. I cannot put 50 ounces of water in there because it wouldn't be able to hold it, but I right. could put 20 or 30 yeah. or 40. Right. It's capable. And all they were doing here is saying to me, are you capable of being honest? I know it's not your preference. Right. I know it's not your preference to do the work, but are you capable of it? And yes, I was capable of it. I just didn't, didn't feel safe. Right. Right. Well, and I do think sometimes that, um, you know, we use the excuse because in order for us to be honest and in order for us to start um, really addressing uh, some of these deep feelings is that we have to be willing to first be honest with ourselves, right? So it's one thing to be dishonest with someone else, but when you can't get to that point of really saying um, to yourself, wow, this is a real issue. And I do believe there are some people out there where, and, and that's why I love the onion analogy, where it really yeah. takes them a long time to even appreciate how deep, because behind, underneath all that is a fear, right? Yeah. It's a fear of if I'm honest, A, B, C, D is going to happen. And until I trust my higher power enough, I can't be honest. And so I've seen these individuals and they do get to the point of being honest, but it takes them time. I mean, I, I worked with a sponsee who it took her a really long time. And I remember saying to her, look, um, I have not met or worked with anyone who this hasn't worked for. I said, so the Wait, only thing pause. I can, just say right. that again, that is so I, I've never worked with someone who this hasn't worked for. And people may tell you all kinds of stuff. And that's okay. But the reality is, is you need to trust and take that leap of faith that it's going to be okay because right now what we're all doing isn't working. What I and was what doing. And what do you have to lose? Like, exactly. Like exactly. kill yourself later, right? Like you can always kill yourself later. Like yeah. give this, a, you know what I mean? Like I love what right. the old timers used to say, sit with me. They used to do this because it's back in the day and things were less expensive. They would put a $5 bill down. And they would say, do all this work. And if it doesn't work, I will buy you your first, your first six pack is on me. That would be $5. Yeah. And you know, my mom always would say, we'll gladly um, refund you your misery. You know, right. like what's the, what's the big deal if you're in such a, if you want to end your life, put it on hold. That's an option for you. You can always do that right. later. Do all the work with us. And, you know, I'm so glad that we're talking about this because there's so much, you know, taboo around this about yeah. mental illness. And it, this <sighs> is so, I didn't even think about it, but it's so awesome that you're on here. And I want you to know that when I got to that page, um, page 52, I actually got to it again. I remember uh, in four and a half years sober, I was four and a half years sober, 10 meetings a week, sponsoring, going through the big book, not doing 10 and 11. I did not do 10 and 11. I just did one through nine and 12. Right. So I did no inventory, no meditation. I didn't either. Right. Um, but I, it was enough to stay here. Okay. To look really busy and to believe that I had it. And I was in Chicago and I was a mess. I was working so hard in my mind. I was like, I'm, I'm doing everything I could possibly do. And I wanted to kill myself sober because I, every year I needed to do another inventory, big inventory because fourth step, because I wasn't inventorying on a daily basis. Right. I wasn't getting rid of the stuff that was blocking me off from God. And I wasn't meditating, connecting. And I remember 
I was so desperate. I've been on so many different medications. I've been off medications for a year and a half with the help of a doctor. And I didn't want to be someone that needed medication. I wanted, right. I wanted AA to be enough. Right. And my ego was like, I should, I was shooting all over myself. I shouldn't feel this way at this much sobriety. Right. And someone gave me the number of a psychiatrist and I'd never had good luck with anybody. Right. And I said to God, I was crying and I was lost looking for this doctor's office um, off of the train stop I was at. And I realized I had a spiritual awakening. I'm walking around this institution, which was like a hospital institution, like a campus yeah. in Chicago. And I'm looking for a psychiatrist because I'm sick. Right. And I need help. Right. And it was the first time I ever admitted sober that I was actually sick. Right. And I sat down in this little stuffy room with no windows with stupid old pamphlets. And I remember thinking, God, I will do anything it takes to get better. I don't care who this person is. And I just got lucky enough that the guy I sat in front of was honest. And he said, look, I believe you can get better, but this is going to take time. And it's going to mean you're going to have to show up and do the work, even if it doesn't work right away. Right. And, you know, what I want to say to people who are listening and what I want to ask you as a sponsor, how would you guide a woman or a man who came to you and who could check all these boxes on 52 at regardless of where they're at in the sobriety? What would you, the next steps be with them? So um, I have had uh, people come to me and um, with my one sponsee, she was just really, really um, struggling. And she says, I just don't understand. And I said, well, let's step back and take a look at this. Where does it say in the big book that you can't get help? What it says is that we are willing to do whatever it takes to maintain our sobriety. And so in her situation, I said, there's nothing wrong with reaching out and having a conversation with maybe a mental health professional. Maybe it's not the answer. But we continue to try every single path because our sobriety is that important to us. And so I'd like to also point out to them that drinking was our solution to a problem that was much deeper than picking up the drink. Mm. So we had issues of anxiety, depression, and fear. And when we drank, we felt better. And that carried us for a long time. So when we take away that alcohol, suddenly we are left with this stuff that even working steps, even doing inventory, even doing everything doesn't mean that the chemicals in our brain are going to agree with all that. It might mean that you have to talk to a professional, that you have to maybe look at medication. So, you know, I always- And there's no back. shame in that. No, no. And I have stepped back with some people saying, you know, we all have our own path to recovery. It all mm -hmm. starts in the big book. Our sobriety right. is in this big book. And it's also- willing to do whatever it takes to stay sober. Because if we look at that list of ailments on page 52 of depression and all that stuff, those are real mental health issues, even in people who don't drink. Yes. So how do we manage that? We don't say, well, just talk to a, a friend about it. We say, maybe you need to get some help. Right. And they tell us that we're supposed to go out and get outside help if we need it. And if here's how you know that you're doing the right thing. If you go out and get some mental health, mental health help, if you need it, and they give you a medication and you tell them that you're sober. And I've had to do this many times. We have to be responsible for our sobriety because I can go and sit in front of a psychiatrist and they will give me medication that I don't need to have just because of my symptoms. And it's my responsibility to tell them I need something that I'm not going to become addicted to. Correct. I need something that's not going to cut me off from God. Okay. Correct. Because right. And so 
that's my responsibility. And I can't take two of something that I'm supposed to take one of if I'm having a bad day, right? So my job is to follow the directions that I've never done. And that's where we are. You know, I've had women that have been like, well, I was having a bad day. So I took three of my depression pills. And I was like, you just relapsed. And they're like, no, I didn't. And I'm like, yes, you did. Yeah. You believe the lie that you could take more of something than a medical doctor prescribed for you. Right. And you didn't, you didn't follow the directions you wanted out of the way you're feeling. And instead of doing the work or asking your doctor, am I on the right medication? You went above and beyond yourself and decided I need more, which is what we sure. always do. Sure. Well, and you know, I think what's interesting um, about what you just said is um, asking, you know, you're asking your doctor, you know, we live in a world right now where you can get whatever answer you want on the internet. Right, yeah. Google, Safari, oh Duck, yes. Duck, Go, whatever. We can go anywhere and get an answer. But the truth is, is that it's um, a textbook answer, right? And health isn't textbook all the time. And so you're right. It's talk to your doctor. You know that's what you know that's what providers are there for. If something's not working, for God's sakes, tell me. Don't lie. And when you're right. in the hospital, I find out it didn't work. You know. Yeah, and that same doctor that I sat in front of in Chicago was my psychiatrist for years and years, even though I moved because I've never found anyone that's that awesome again. Right. And he said when I was going through my really scary time with my son, I he said, Carly, you're on the highest level of what I can give you safely. And right. I said, I can't breathe. My right. chest is not. I'm not being able to breathe. And mind you, I was not doing a 10 and 11. I didn't know how to do it at that time. I was right. more. I was no. I was 11 years sober. I did not know what a 10 and 11 step was, which is embarrassing, but it would have made my life a lot better. And he didn't say, let's give you a new medication. He said, my suggestion for you is that you work out 30 minutes a day, every single day, no matter what, not so your body can look a certain way, but so it can cut off the tension in your chest. Yeah. And I did. And like, so, and I do, because I need to, to like work out the crazy. And you know, the reality is the reminder that there's so much more we need to be doing sober in order yes. to be sober than just attendance at meetings. It's yes. such a big list, right? Yes. yes, yes. Well, and you know, it's, um, you know, I, I can't agree with you more because, you know, I have my own children and thank goodness at this point in time, they're not alcoholics, but, you know, they have some mental health issues, right? And they want, they're in a generation that wants a quick fix. And uh, my daughter said to me the other day, well, oh, great, this sucks. Now I got to go figure out what else to do. I said, oh, gosh, it doesn't suck. I said, what a beautiful opportunity for you to learn about yourself and to learn about what else you need to do, because yeah. it's not always about take a pill. It's, right. Have you been exercising? Have you been sleeping? Say, when we get sober, our bodies are fed, the, have been fed the wrong things. We have not exercised. We have put chemicals in our body that only God knows how we survive. We don't sleep. We don't eat right. We don't take care of ourselves. We are oh. completely, we think that, you know, all we have to do is stop drinking or using and we're going to be okay. And it's not, I mean, the truth is in the beginning, that is the basics, but then, you know, the longer I'm sober, the, the longer my list is of what Carly needs to do in order to be of maximum service to God and her fellows. Because yeah. if I don't do my meditation, if I don't eat right, if I don't exercise, if I don't answer my sponsor's messages, if I don't send a 10 step, I'm never going to be able to be the woman I want to be today. No. And you know, um, it, when you were commenting, this thought came into my head. At the point at which I started doing 10 steps, I had been in a relationship that was extremely, extremely toxic. And, um, and I didn't see it that way, right? And 
And so I started doing 10 steps and I started appreciating how emotionally unsober I was mm. because I had put my reliance on someone versus my higher power. Now I didn't think I had done that, but by doing the work of the 10 steps and seeing my selfishness and my dishonesty and all the resentments I had and how I wanted things my way, not God's way, um, really made me very, very sick, but I wasn't drinking. It made mm. me sick. And, you know, the other day I read something that was so profound. It said, um, sometimes when we don't follow God's will, he makes the person hurt us so that we can appreciate that we need to let go. Mm. And I just sat there like, wow, that isn't emotional sobriety. It's like, you know, our higher power, if we stick to him, her, whatever we choose to call it, um, we'll send a signal. And I always say, God, make it neon because I'm a bullhead. I love that. I like neon better than hitting me in the head with a sledgehammer. Yes. Give me a neon sign that says, Eileen, you're going the wrong way. And he You know what? That's such a great reminder. You know, like when I'm going the wrong way on the freeway and I get off and now we have all these apps that tell us, it says rerouting, right? I don't want to know I'm going the wrong way and then just be like, oh, I'm going the wrong way. I'm just going to drive for four hours the wrong way. Get off it, right? Get off of the exit, reroute, compose yourself, aka 10 step, take right. a deep breath and get on the right exit, right? Like we don't have to keep going. And so I want everyone to say in closing, if you're listening to us and you can relate to that untreated alcoholism checklist and you're like, what am I not doing? Make sure you have a sponsor that's taking the book and the steps and is guiding you through. If you don't, you can reach out to me um, um, on Facebook at Carly Israel and you can find me there. Our North Star Big Book home group is every Thursday at seven. We would love to have you there Eastern time. It's all on that Facebook page. Um, Eileen, I'm so grateful to have you. And I was thinking about it. I'm not afraid of growing older because I want to be surrounded with women and men like you, because I feel like we're, we're going to just keep getting better. Like I'm excited to grow and laugh and know that there's a solution, even though we fall down all the time. And I'm so lucky to walk with you. Yeah. Same, Carly, you've changed my life. And, you know, you may not see the extent of that, but I can tell you the difference a year makes is phenomenal. The I difference you. Makes is phenomenal. And you've just been really that guiding North Star for me. Mm-hmm. And I feel that you are on the path of truth. And that's exactly where I need to be. So are you, sister, walking hand in hand. I love you. Have a great day. You, Carly. If you'd like to join us on Thursday nights for North Star Big Book meeting, we would love to have you. 7 p.m. Eastern. It's a Zoom meeting and the information is in the episode notes. Have a great one. Hi, guys. I just wanted to let you know that my memoir, Seconds and Inches, is out. It's on paperback, digital, and even audio with me narrating. And I'm really hoping you'll check it out. You can get it on Amazon, Audible, Apple, or anywhere else you normally get audio downloads. And the intro is by one of my favorite authors, Jennifer Pasteloff. I get to narrate the entire story, which is a dream of mine that I never thought was going to happen. I just wanted to share this with you because I would love your support and I would love to hear your feedback on what you think. 